third in the middle of the prayers the first one specifically there is the willingness expressed to take upon us his name and that is powerfully significant in the traditions of the Old Testament a name is almost like an identity to have the name of a given person is to take upon oneself the attributes or characteristics of that person to lose one's name is in effect to lose one's identity and mission more than this among the Jews the most sacred name in the world is the name which they never pronounce vocally for the divine it's written uh, yod hey vav hey in their own Torah but if they are reading from Torah they do not pronounce that at all they use a substitute word namely Adonai and anciently before that name was ever pronounced there were reservations and bounds set for example the high priest the chief high priest on Yom Kippur and only on that day prepared first for nearly a week in fasting and prayer and rehearsal and then entered into the temple mount and into the most sacrosanct part of it namely the holy of holies and then only did he pronounce that means once a year the sacred name of God by placing upon the four horns of the altar inside the holy of holies he was symbolically cleansing the sanctuary which also meant cleansing all Israel who by the presumption of the law were on that day repentant and their lives now being regenerated in preparation for a new year their faith was that if the sins of Israel and it was as if they came before God as one person so that whatever one did wrong was a sin for all and whatever was done righteously was for all if their sins became so serious and their repentance so superficial then the high priest could not cleanse the sanctuary and they the people and the temple were rejected what this means looking retrospectively is that when you ask today why was the temple destroyed the official answer has to be because the people sinned beyond regeneration all that is the background of Jesus saying to his own take upon you my name and to take the sacred name of Christ which has become a, a, a synonym for the divine is to fulfill all these purposes both in the spirit of repentance and in the spirit of renewal well in this again moment of completing the Passover Seder 
and submitting himself as a almost a slave in the washing of their feet, Jesus undertakes the marvelous sermons of comfort to the twelve. And chapter 14 of the Gospel of John is the one that begins, Let not your heart be troubled. We know that their hearts were troubled. We know from another source that at one point in the meal they became grieved and, it says, wept over him. Now he's saying, let not your hearts be troubled, and gives them insight onto the, into their future. I cite two changes from the King James text that are revelatory. The way it reads originally is, the world may know that I love the Father, but in the inspired version, I tell you these things that ye may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. The other is a statement that refers to the prince of darkness. In the King James, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. In the inspired version, the prince of darkness who is of this world cometh but hath no power over me, but he hath power over you. Now earlier he had told Peter, When thou art converted, feed my sheep. Now he is saying to them, Understand your missions and abide in me. I turn now to an account of chapter 14, that is a treasure in our own literature. And each of these sentences is a promise, but then I will introduce a comment from our modern prophet. Says the master, let not your heart be troubled. There are a great many mansions in my father's house. I'm going to prepare one for you. Joseph Smith's version is there are many kingdoms in my father's kingdom. Then again, Joseph Smith's comment, every man that receives the gospel receives that inheritance that the apostles did. Jesus said, everyone that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Traditionally, that's turned into a metaphysical statement as if the Father and the Son are somehow identical. But what he was saying was, Now, my dear brethren, that you have lived with me and participated with me in my ministry, and even in my temptations, you have seen a manifestation of the Father. For to glorify the Father is to glorify me. I will pray the Father, says the Master, and he shall send you another comforter. Can we, at this distance, imagine what it might have been like to hear a prayer of the Master in their own clear language and to recognize that he was seeking and calling down upon them a comforter? Joseph Smith teaches us that there were two 
really involved here. He was pleading, first of all, for the Holy Ghost to abide with him. And in the prophet's version, to reach to things within the veil. But he was also saying, I will not have you comfortless. I will come to you. So the most powerful comfort he can give them is that yes, he is going away, and yes, after his departure there will be a new flow of the Spirit. But he's also adding, there is a way in which I can remain in touch with you. I will come to you, abide with you forever. Says the prophet, if he does not, he has not told the truth. And again, he universalizes the promise. It is to all mankind. It is our privilege, he says, our privilege to pray for and obtain these things. Then comes the question to the Master, how, will, how is it thou wilt manifest thyself to us and not to the world? And Jesus says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, I will manifest myself to him. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we both, I and my Father, will take up our abode with him. Finally, says the prophet in commenting on this marvelous set of promises, and speaking through them to us, come to God, weary him until he blesses you. We are entitled to the same blessings. Well, in connection with that chapter, there is still another, and that's chapter 17 of John, which becomes not a sermon only, but a prayer. Nothing in the record indicates where exactly this prayer was offered or who was present to hear it. All we have is the record of it. Who recorded it that night or remembered it so clearly he could later write it? We don't know. But this is the prayer that is summarized in the sentence that they all, Father, may be one, that they may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And in the same relationship, he prays, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. Interestingly, we have a statement in John's epistle that almost radically separates the world and the kingdom of heaven. It says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But a slight modification, namely of only one preposition, helps us understand what he was saying. Love not the world, says the inspired version, neither the things that are of the world. And as you continue to read, world becomes a synonym for wickedness. But world is not used to mean the earth. We are to love the earth. 
we are to overcome the sins of the world but we are ultimately to rejoice in this earth which is to be Christ's now on that occasion I suggest the twelve understood more clearly than ever before what Jesus must have meant in previous statements which had puzzled them go back for example to the feedings that occurred in Galilee and in passing we should observe that the only one of the twelve who did not come from the region of the Galil as it's called was Judas the others had apparently been present when Jesus fed the multitudes and on one occasion four thousand another five in each case he had not only fed them beginning with only a few loaves and fishes but there was a residue left of twelve baskets so that he actually made more than was needed by the same token in the first miracle at least the first recorded by John he made wine made it at, the, at a wedding ceremony made it at the request of his mother and after there had been comments from the guests that this was the best wine and strangely he had reserved it to the last which reversed the typical procedure he had left over five stone water pots there's indication of how many firkins they're measuring way there were but by our measure that would have been about a hundred gallons Jesus had made more than enough in both instances and why was he unaware of the actual count or of the actual need or was he teaching by this act that when he said I am come that they might have life more abundantly there was enough and to spare well it was in that feeding time that Jesus gave the discourse recorded in John 6 and by the time he was finished many who had up to that point followed him ceased to follow him went away sorrowing and that's when Jesus poignantly turns to those close to him and says will ye also go away and Peter replied, Master, thou hast the words of eternal life. But in that discourse, he identifies himself with the manna sent from on high, contrasts that manna and its eating by saying, and they are now dead, by saying, but I am the living bread sent down from heaven. All this prefigures the ordinance of the sacrament. And he has elsewhere spoken of himself, both as the living bread and the living water. Let me read now from the best version of the text. No man can come unto me except he doeth the will of the Father. And this is the will of him who hath sent me, that ye receive the Son, this is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof, 
and not die. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. But I am the living bread. The but incidentally is added. The original text has no but. The contrast is made. But I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up in the resurrection of the just at the last day. It only says in the King James, I will raise him up. And he adds, Therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except he doeth the will of my Father who hath sent me. Well, John has in his entire gospel seven main miracles, the last one being the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the climactic miracle. But the other miracle which is continual is that by an ordinance introduced from on high, we may be slowly transformed into his likeness. Howbeit we know this man is of God, says the text. Well, I turn now to summarize with a story. In the earliest days of the modern church, we had no chapel. We often met out in the open, sometimes in homes, occasionally in schools. Until the Kirtland Temple was finished, we did not have a large assembly place. So while at far west Missouri, for example, the prophet once called together the saints and said we will have a sacrament meeting. And on a table, there was placed a large uh, collection of newly baked bread and next to it a small container of wine. Both the bread and the wine were blessed. And then each person came forward, broke off a piece of bread, helped himself to a little wine, and walked uh, around, sometimes in groups, sometimes off onto the prairie alone. And this continued all through the day. Twice during the day, one or another of the leaders stood on a wagon and addressed those who were standing nearby. At the end of the day, history says, all were filled. The same exact language that's used for the Nephite multitude after the partaking of the sacrament. Filled, it is clear, in both ways. Filled in the sense that they were no longer hungry or thirsty, but filled also in the way promised, filled with the Spirit. This is the spirit of the order of sacrament as it was experienced that night on the mount called Mount Zion. I close by a personal witness. I once was a, a participant at a distance in a sacrament meeting where the president of the church was present. It is our custom, though I know of no specific direction 
in writing that after the blessing of the emblems, the first person to partake is the presiding officer. And so a deacon proceeds and places the tray next to President David O. McKay. His head was down, his eyes were closed, and he did not reach. The deacon remained standing. All others waited since he was to set the precedent. Time passed. And then at last President McKay's head came up and those present, at least those close, could see the tears on his cheeks and he reached and partook of the bread. The same thing happened as the water was passed. And the deacon later said, I now understand that he was feeling something that maybe some of us don't feel. I now understand that if we don't know what we are doing when we partake of the sacrament, we're not really doing it. And so we have the testimony of the late Elder Melvin J. Ballard, who said, I am a witness that there is a spirit that attends the sacrament that warms the soul from head to feet. You feel the wounds on your soul being lifted. I pray that as we partake, we may remember this glorious night in ancient Jerusalem. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.